I don't know if you've ever been at an event before, an uh, out, outdoor event. Maybe you've been in a stadium when the Blue Angels precision flying team came over. It's the, it's the military unit, the Navy, who fly their planes in perfect precision. Spectacular. It's powerful. It's, you can hardly hear anything else. And a few years ago, there was a, a people were in a, a crowd was in a football stadium. This team flew over, and then when the pilots landed, a helicopter picked them up. And then later in the game, came down on the 50-yard line, and the pilots stepped out of the helicopter, and the crowd just went crazy. And the announcer, what he said was this: "If I were God, the way I would send my son into the world is like this, where it's spectacular precision." and uh, patterns in the sky with a cheering crowd and with those silver flight suits. And we know that the story we celebrate of God entering into the world wasn't like that. It didn't come from mansions and places of earthly power. It came in a manger among a family who was very poor. Uh, We're in a five-week series now called Rekindle, and we just want to kind of celebrate the season of Advent, the birth of Jesus, and what it means for us today I want you to think about some phrases. I hope to offer you up some hope today that Jesus did not come to give you a gift of eternal life. Jesus came as eternal life. So it wasn't just that Jesus was giving you something that would leave him and then enter into you. That through Jesus is how eternal life comes to us. And there are religions all throughout the world and growing religions. Uh, Eastern religions are growing. Religions like Buddhism and Hinduism and some of those Eastern religions. And what they tell you about their God is that their God is, it's not personal. Their God, uh, there's no personal communion. It is impersonal force is what they have to offer. And there are many other faiths in the world that if their God is somewhat relational, it's basically only in a way where the relationship reminds you of your place, that you bow down in the presence of whoever that God is. We have the only faith, Christianity is the only faith, that has a story of a God becoming flesh. Fully God, fully human. Stepping down into humanity, stepping on this earth, walking among people. So we read in places like John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and stooped low. The Word became flesh and gets lower than your lowest low. The Word becomes flesh and enters into the mess of life. The Word became flesh and goes to ERs where three-year-olds are having seizures. Which, by the way, that ruined me a minute ago, all right? In a good way. You and Kip, I'm, I'm amazed that you were able to stand up here with that kind of strength. I was bawling, and I like almost leaned over to say, Casey, you're going to have to preach this sermon. But then I thought about job security and thought that would not be a good thing to do. Um, God enters into places like that to reveal his presence. Um, <clears throat> Daniel Steele was, was a British Methodist minister in the 18th century. He says this about his affections growing for Jesus. He said, almost every week and sometimes almost every day, the pressure of his great love comes down on my heart in such a measure as to make my whole being, soul and body, groan beneath the strain of the almost unsu- unsupportable plethora of joy. And yet amid this fullness, there is a hunger for more that he has unlocked every apartment of my being and filled and flooded them all with the light of his radiant presence. The spot before untouched has been reached and all its flintiness is melted in the presence of Jesus, the one altogether lovely. The Gospels, uh, you have four stories of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And they're four different perspectives. They come at four different times. They're written to four different audiences. Four different personalities wrote them. And God inspired all four of them. For some reason, two of them decided not to tell you anything about the birth of Jesus. So Mark and John just skipped the whole narrative. Now John talks about the word becoming flesh and the light breaking into the world. But for Mark and John, I think between the two of them, they only mentioned Joseph being Jesus' dad once. and, And Mark doesn't even mention the name of Mary anywhere in there. And I'm not saying it's a sin for Mark and John not to talk about the birth of Jesus or Joseph and Mary or, or the, the manger or Rudolph and all the other things that go with this season, all right? I'm not saying it's a sin. I just do think that one day Jesus is going to pull Mark and John aside and be like, man, you, you don't want to talk about my mom? Like, what? what you, you, my mom wants to talk to you, all right? Go see her. They don't, they don't really mention it, but Matthew and Luke do. And they tell the birth narrative of Jesus in two different ways to two different audiences, and I want to walk you through it this morning. And I want to begin with Luke's account. You can tell Luke's a doctor and a physician. He's a guy with a lot of detail when it takes him basically three chapters to tell you about the birth of Jesus. And the way Luke does it is he, 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 there's a few points I want to point out uh, in the way Luke talks about the birth narrative of Jesus. And here's just a few of them. Write them down or after they're all on the screen, feel free to take a picture. I think it's important for you to know Luke is writing to primarily a Gentile audience. So what that means is these are non-Jews and they don't know the story of God. They don't know the stories of God creating the world or the Exodus or David and the giant or Daniel and the lion's den. They, they don't know these stories. So the question for the early church church for, for a lot of them was what stories do the Gentiles need to know before they can accept Jesus as their savior? Like what are the stories? Like what is the knowledge they need to know about God? And some of you have had these questions too, whether it's the Lord breaking into your life and, and teaching you about the, his ways. Are you asking, what do I need to know to enter into this story? Or what do I need to do? And for, the, for many of them, it was, what do the Gentiles need to know so that they can become Christians? And when they're Christians, how, what, is, what parts of the Old Testament do they need to know? It was written to a primarily Gentile audience. In the Gospel of Luke, women are empowered. Women are given a voice more than Matthew, Mark, or John. Women have a voice. Their stories are told. You have places in Luke where women are caring for Jesus in his ministry. They're at the resurrection. There are a lot of stories of women doing things. Luke talks more about women than anyone else. And what Luke does in his gospel is he's writing to Gentiles to let them know they have a place in the story of God. He's writing for people to know that male and female, both of them, one is not over the other. They are drawn into the kingdom of God together and the poor have a place at the table, that poor and rich, that everyone is invited into this story. And the way Luke tells the birth narrative of Jesus, the way he starts off his whole gospel, is he has a few verses where he tells you that he's taken a lot of time to do research, careful research. But the way he begins telling the birth narrative, uh, narrative of Jesus is he begins by telling a story about an older barren woman, this older woman named Elizabeth who can't have a baby. And so this happens in Luke chapter 1 verse 7. Now, a few things about barrenness. Whenever you see barren throughout the Bible, the entire Bible, if you ever see a woman who cannot have a baby, life should be going off for you because every woman who is barren in the Bible ends up having a baby. Now, I've, I've wrestled with this and I've written about this in some books in the past. And, and I've, Casey and I have had uh, the, the honor of walking some of you in this room through uh, seasons or, uh, of infertility where you have been barren or you know someone has. 
And I really struggle with this because I wish there was a story in the Bible of a woman who was barren and her life ended in barrenness. And it's not that I wish that for anyone, just that we would have a story to connect to of a woman who was barren and it didn't end up with a child because that's not, all the, that, that's not the way all of your stories go. Uh, but everyone in the Bible who's barren ends up having a baby. Sometimes people point to Michael because in 1 Samuel there is the time when she gets really upset at David because he was dancing too much and it says that her, she did not have any children the rest of her life and some people think that her, her, she was made barren by God but I, I think what happened is David had a lot of other wives so it never happened again between David and Michael. You know what I'm saying? It, it didn't happen. I mean, when you have that many other wives, it's not like you're starving. I mean, you got plenty of options out there, all right? Um, give it a shot. Uh, but with Elizabeth, she's barren. She can't have a baby. And my sister struggled with this before she died. Eight years. And I remember walking with her through this, the questions that would come, the prayers we would pray. And why sometimes it seems like there's a perfectly healthy, godly couple who love each other and they love God and they can't have a baby, yet sometimes 14-year-olds can end up doing things and boom, they get pregnant. Here's Elizabeth, and this is the way Luke starts out telling the birth of Jesus. It's about an older woman who can't have a child. And then the next story is from Mary's perspective. And Mary is a young, single virgin who ends up finding out from the Holy Spirit that she is going to have a baby. So, so Luke is telling you the story of Jesus almost from a female perspective. There's Elizabeth who can't have a baby. There's Mary who shouldn't be at her point. She's not even married yet, and she's, she's having a baby. And a couple of other things about Luke and this, uh, the way this plays out. There are power struggles in this birth narrative. And, and uh, one thing Luke does in Luke chapter, uh, you can see him on the screen, right? Just give, if you go to that next slide. Throughout the birth narrative in Luke, he lets you know people who are in charge. So in chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about Herod. In chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he gives you a list of people like the Roman Emperor Augustus and Quirinius, who was a governor. And then in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, he, he just lists out all these other rulers. And maybe Luke was doing this because he was an historian. And maybe it's like how I would talk to you about like something like during the Obama administration or the Bush administration. It would kind of give you a, a feel for a season or a decade that I'm referring to. Maybe Luke is doing some of that, but I think Luke is doing something much bigger than that. He's not just doing history. He's listing all of these rulers, all of these people who had a lot of power when Jesus was born into the world. These are people with power and influence. They had power over life. They had power over death. They could send out armies whenever they wanted. These are men who were holding the reins of power. Yet for every single one of those men, they would die and their kingdoms would die. But the king who was being born into the world through a manger and through a young, poor teenage woman is going to have a kingdom that will last forever. It's an upside-down kingdom. God's doing something through Jesus you can never imagine. So what Luke wants you to know, even through the birth narrative of Jesus, is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, this is for everyone. It's for the poor and it's for the rich because Luke tells more stories about the poor than any other gospel and he also tells more stories about wealthy people doing good things than anyone else. It's for the poor, it's for the rich, it's for the male and female, it's for the Jew and Gentile. It is for all people who've been invited into the story of God. Now, with the gospel of Luke, a lot of people point to Luke and say he's the writer for the underdog because one of every 10 verses deals with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. 
And some people look at Luke and they call him the advocate for justice and compassion. And sometimes we can get caught up in service, especially this time of year, in service and justice and activism and compassion. And we want to do good things. And if we're not careful, we think that we do that to earn favor with God or to earn salvation. And like like there are things we can do or things we can achieve to earn the favor of God, the grace of God, the salvation of God. The first president of the Czech Republic a few decades ago. He was a man who had a heart for God and he also knew that science, unguided by moral principles, is what led to things like the Holocaust. And, and this president didn't believe that socialism nor capitalism could solve the world's biggest problems and he concluded that neither technology, the state, the market, that none of these could solve things like nuclear conflict and ethnic violence or environmental disaster. Now, we're in a season right now around Christmas where we want to promote joy and peace. Let's just say, hey, it's a joy and peaceful season. Let's go and live joy and peace. And I'm not anti-joy and peace at all. I'm for it. But I think this president of the Czech Republic says something that, that we need to be reminded of in this season. What he says is, the pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. A turning to and seeking of God is needed because the human race constantly forgets that he or she is not God. It's not about just doing good things to get saved or to earn favor with God. It's realizing that everything we have is in Jesus. He is the good news and he is for all people. That's Luke's gospel. Now let me tell you about Matthew's birth narrative because it's a little different. Matthew takes two chapters to tell you about the birth of Jesus. Matthew's writing to primarily a Jewish audience, not Gentile audience. It's why Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than Mark, Luke, and John. He's constantly quoting the Old Testament because he's using the Old Testament to prove to these Jews that Jesus is who Jesus says he was, that the prophets were, they knew what they were talking about, or maybe they didn't know exactly how it was going to play out, but all this has been part of the plan of God. Matthew tells Jesus' birth story. One of the big points of the whole gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the new Moses. Because for any Jew, Moses was the leader of all leaders. Moses is the one who led people through the Red Sea. God used Moses to lead people into freedom. So Moses was highly lifted up by the Jewish people. So throughout Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses leading us to our ultimate exodus and freedom. And in the birth narrative of Jesus, in the gospel of Matthew, what happens is you have Jesus who when he was born... They are warned that the the person in charge is going to seek to kill you. So they fled to Egypt. So Jesus was a refugee who went to Egypt, much like Moses. And then he came back from Egypt and was raised in uh, Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. And, And he's the new Moses. There were babies who were killed in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, just like back in the Exodus. Matthew, the birth narrative of Jesus is told more from Joseph's perspective, unlike Luke who tells it more from Mary's perspective. But here's a big one, all right, for Matthew. Because he's going to start telling the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, but he begins his gospel by telling about a genealogy. So it goes like this. I mean, if you open, if you're reading the New Testament for the first time, if somebody's like, hey, you've never read the Bible, just start reading Matthew. The first thing you read is, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And that goes on for 16 verses. How many of you, are, you have read Matthew before and you have skipped the genealogy to get straight to verse 16 and 17? God knows who you are, all right? <clears throat> 
And we do this sometimes. So why does he start off with a genealogy, all right? And, and I know this is a, like we're into genealogies today. Like we want to know where we came from and who our great, 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 great grandparents were. And this is fascinating stuff. But why does Matthew begin with this? Uh, Craig Rochelle, he's a pastor of the largest church in America. It's a church of about 75,000 people. They have over 100 satellite churches all throughout the United States. He's based in Oklahoma. I was in an event back in June where I heard him speak, and he, and he shared his testimony that he didn't grow up in the church. He didn't grow up knowing anything about Christianity, and he went to college, and he was the president of a, of a fraternity. And this was not a godly fraternity at all, and he was the president of it, yet he began feeling and sensing the stirring of God in his life, and he decided that, hey, he didn't know anything about the Bible. He's the president of a fraternity. He wanted to teach other. He, maybe God wanted them to read the Bible together. So he just made an announcement to his crew one day. He said, hey, when we come together next week, we're going to read the Bible together. No one else around there had the Bible either. So he said, so between now and then, everybody here needs to go find the Bible. So they came the next week, and sure enough, people had Bibles. And they said, well, where do we even start? We don't know where to start. So let's just start where, wherever it begins. And people opened up, and then they started arguing about where to begin because some of them had Bibles that began in Genesis, but some of them had Bibles that only had the New Testament. And it began in Matthew. So they didn't, they didn't see why the Bible, one began in Genesis and one in Matthew. So they began asking questions, and somebody's like, well, I, I hear that Matthew is where Jesus starts. So they started reading Matthew, and it was the genealogy. And here are these guys, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, reading the Bible for the first time, reading the Gospel of Matthew, and it's so-and-so begat so-and-so, and was the dad of this, and just went on and on. And he said, it's by the grace of God they pressed through, and then they got to the story of Jesus. I think the reason Matthew has the genealogy before the birth of Jesus is this. It's more, it's more than just doing history. It's to let the church know then and to let us know now that the ongoing story of God is unfolding. And the ongoing story of God keeps inviting. And that the birth of Jesus wasn't this just fresh idea that God had because his other eye didn't work. It's that this is the progression. This is what is next. It is the birth of Jesus is within the greater story of God's salvation and faithfulness. It's a genealogy that lets you know that there is history and names and experiences and mistakes. And over all of it is God's faithfulness and his redemption and his ongoing work and his desire to save humanity. And the birth of Jesus is placed within that larger story and you are placed within a much larger story. Where it's not just your birth and your death. You are in this ongoing story of God who is hungering and desiring to save the entire world. And, and the thing is, is that when it comes to stories, we're fascinated by stories. We're intrigued by them. Most of you go to movies and you choose movies by how appealing or compelling the story seems to be. When you come out of a movie, you judge the movie based on the same thing. Was it a compelling story? And when it comes to life, the way it works today, and I think this is important for the church to know, the way it works today is, within our greater culture, the best story is the story that wins. Right? Whatever the best story is that people are telling is the story that people want to live into. So, 
the way we are testifying and witnessing to Jesus, is it laying in front of our neighbors and the people we work with and throughout the world and our culture, is it letting them know that the story we are in, we believe it to be so compelling and so adventurous and so exciting and inviting that this is a story we're giving your life to. Because the research shows from Barna and Pew Research is that after this last election, 14% of people left their churches because the way they saw people giving their lives to a story didn't line up with the story that they saw in the Gospels. We can align ourselves with certain stories that don't align with the ultimate story, God's unfolding story of salvation and redemption. So we're in a season right now of, of Christmas, season of Advent. Christmas is not the only the biggest holiday for Christians. It's also the biggest, largest holiday for the secular world. There are people all over the world who celebrate Christmas. And some of them may not even know why. Christmas begins. Most of the time you know it's Christmas season because maybe there's a song you hear. And maybe you hear it way too early. All right? Many of us know it's Christmas season because the lights, are, the lights come on. Now we can debate when Christmas lights need to go on. Is it before Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving? Mid-November's all right. Labor Day's not cool, right? <clears throat> but the lights come on. Which spiritually leads to be something for us too. The lights come on. It's a season of Advent. Advent begins today. Advent goes back, the, the Christian calendar goes back to 1,500 years, maybe as far back as 1,800 years. And it's a Christian calendar which keep, leads you through seasons to process faith and theology and God. And it's seasons that lead you to celebration but also deep reflection. Advent is about the coming of Jesus. It begins with a time of waiting and longing and it ends with celebration. So the whole process of Advent, it is is a progression. It begins maybe in the dark. It begins with waiting and then it leads up to the arrival of the birth of Jesus and also for us who have given our lives to Jesus, it's the second arrival of Jesus that is coming. Uh, And if we don't take time to reflect on the season. The countdown to Santa becomes much stronger and greater than the countdown to the celebration of God who entered into the world as Jesus. One of the reasons we're not good at a season like Advent is that we're not good at waiting and we're not good at reflecting. We want to get straight to joy and celebration. And sometimes it's the call of God for our maturity to slow us down to reflect much better before we get to the celebration. It's a season of remembering and rejoicing, watching and waiting, and preparation needs to come before celebration. Matt Chandler says this. He says, The season of Advent breaks into our world and reorients our hearts around a better reality. So I felt like about four to six weeks ago, the Lord was pressing on my heart, just giving me a nudge. Because a lot of times we wait until that first Sunday in January, maybe the second Sunday in January, to kind of call the church to a fresh year where we can make some new goals and seek after the heart of God. And I began feeling the nudge of God about four to six weeks ago that, hey, don't wait until January this year. Take some time in December to lead the church and to help the church reflect in a healthy way because some of you have been struck with events over this past year that has changed your life forever, whether good or bad. And how we choose to reflect and to process life with God and the year with God and to know what is it that needs to carry over into a new year and what are the things or emotions or relationships that we need to leave in 2017 because they don't need to go with us into a new year. 
So as I began feeling this nudge of God five, six weeks ago, I talked to some of the leaders here and in two weeks, on December 17th, I told you about this two weeks ago. We're ha- on December 17th, it's going to be a baptism and recommitment Sunday. We're calling people to reflect and to hear the invitation of God because the birth isn't just inviting you into a story where you memorize the story of God. It is that the the birth of Jesus is, is within part of a larger story that doesn't just want you to memorize it. It wants you to know there is a God who wants to be known and a God who wants to be experienced. On December 17th, what, right now we're in the middle of a 28-day of prayer and fasting for the leaders of this church. So today, you've already had 14 days where a leader of this church has been praying for salvation, revival, baptisms, for people to feel the conviction of God, the nudge of God. And in 14 days, you're, over the next 14 days, you're going to have leaders praying the same thing. On December 17th, I, in fact, there are carts. And on all four of these tables today, you'll find two different carts. And on one card, it's a card for baptism. And there are three different boxes you can check. You can check a box if I would like to be baptized on December 17th. Or I would like to study more about baptism. Or I've been baptized, but I still have a lot of questions. And there are places on here for you to write a name and give us a way to contact you. The leaders of the church are the only ones who will see these. And, and the way we even talk about baptism is if some of you feel the nudge of God, you don't have to wait until December 17th, but some of you need to be able to circle something on a calendar because you know there are some decisions in your life you need to make and you haven't made them. And now we're calling you into a season of reflection and prayer. The other card is a card of recommitment. And there are a few boxes on this one you can check. It's a green card. Thanks so much to Justin Argy for creating these. And the box are, I'm ready to take my faith to another level and I would like encouragement and or accountability. There's a box for it's time for me to take spiritual disciplines and connecting with God more seriously. And there's a box if I struggle with confidence and believing whether or not I'm saved. And these are ways for believers, for people in this church that some of you, you've never had a better year with God than you have in 2017. And some of you, you're at a point where you know for years, maybe decades, you've just been coasting. And even that last box of whether you're saved or not, there are people in this church who grew up with a theology or you've come to believe, like once saved, always saved, perseverance of the saints. And the challenge for those who believe in once saved, always saved, is that once you believe you're saved, then there's nothing that could be done about it. If you don't continue to have a heart that is pursuing God, you begin to think that the, the blood of Jesus is just to save you from something and not to save you into a whole new kind of life. But I also know there are people in this room who you were raised with the theology or way of thinking of God where it was if saved, barely saved. Like you may be saved, but it only takes one thing to knock you off. And I sit with some of you and I've sat with people and and every year I have these conversations with folks who have made decisions for Christ before, but they do not have a clear conscience of their salvation And even the book of Hebrews talks about how we should be able to enter into the throne room of God with confidence of who we are with God. So this box gives us a way to work with some of you who may be in that place. Uh, Scott Beck is an author. He wrote the book, The Road Less Travel, and he said this. He said, I feel that most Western people are just spiritually lazy. And when we are lazy, we stay on the path we are already on even if it is going nowhere. Do you ever have moments when you want to look an author in the face and just punch him? You know what I'm saying? Not, not me, but other authors. 
And maybe that's too violent. Kick him in the shin, something like that, all right? I think this rings so true. That when we're lazy, we stay on the path we're already on, even if it's going nowhere. I want to ask the elders and the prayer leaders, if you will, go to places in this room to receive people for prayer. We're going to sing a couple of songs, and in this moment, you are invited to go and find one of our elders or we have women stationed in this room to receive you for prayer. There are the four tables with the cards for baptism or the cards for recommitment. You can fill those out. Now you can wait until after church, but go and check one of those boxes, place it in a basket, and give me, give us a way to follow up with you, to pray over you. As we reflect and spend, hopefully, the next few weeks reflecting on where we are with God and how God is calling us into deeper development, formation, and maturity, Thomas Merton, who was an American monk who lived years ago, said this. He pointed out that we may spend our life climbing the ladder of success only to find when we get to the top that our ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. And it may be a season of reflection to know whether the ladders we're climbing on are against the wrong wall or the right wall or whether the path we are currently on is a path that God wants us on or not. Just let God invite you into this season to reflect on the condition of your heart and where it is God wants to lead you. If there's anything we can do for you as a church, Jim Berryman's up here to my right. We have uh, Kelly over here to my left. If you want to be baptized today, there's something we can do for you. Come, let's stand together. Let's sing a couple of songs.